Hi, welcome back to In The Pink. Thank you so much for your feedback on recent podcasts. It's a great way to stay connected in this lockdown, isn't it? Talking to people and then talking about the people that we've talked to. Um, So I've had loads of great feedback from you. We've got a couple more winners of those Bose noise-cancelling headphones. I'll be announcing that very soon. And we've got some great guests coming up. Thank you for your feedback on Graham Swan. He gave some really descriptive anecdotes about his time playing for England, didn't he? And uh, if you like your cricket, then we've got Johnny Bairstow on the way. Right, next up on In The Pink is a man who's been part of the F1 family for many, many years. However, he doesn't work in the sport. He is a Hollywood actor, most famous for Game of Thrones, Sir Davos. You, of course, now know I'm talking about Liam Cunningham. He's been a massive fan of Formula One for pretty much all his life. And that is a very rich and interesting life that he has led. It's taken him to all corners of the earth, mostly in acting, but also before that as an electrician. He has got some awesome stories to share and he does exactly that on In The Pink. So I hope you enjoy it. Ladies and gentlemen, Liam Cunningham. Liam Cunningham, it is great to see your face and hear your voice. How are you? How are you coping? Where are you? Oh, I'm, oh, I'm in, I can't you tell that. I'm in my uh, gated community in Hollywood. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm in Dublin. I'm back in my home that I've been in for 30 odd years. And um, same as everybody else, going slowly mad. <laughs> It's bonkers, isn't it? And you, yeah. you know, you, you say thirty years. Um, have you? Is it actually the same bricks and mortar that, that whole time? That even though you're this big star now. Yeah, I know. I do get a, I do get accused occasionally because I do whinge and moan about politics and stuff, and I do some, you know, stuff for refugees and all that. That it's okay for you and your. That's when they bring out the gated community in Hollywood. It's all right for you and Hollywood and your gated community. I've been in the same house for the last thirty odd years. I keep my life simple, Natalie. It allows me to save up and go to Formula One races. <laughs> and you need a big budget for that. There is One a- does. One does. More of that later. Tell me about your childhood and tell me about growing up in Dublin. Um, you know what? I had a completely idyllic childhood. And, um, uh, I, you know what? There's a saying that I love that I once knew a man who was so poor that all he had was money. Um, and... Um, I was the opposite. I was extremely well. I, I, my dad is very blue-collar, working-class um, uh, background. So was I. Um, but I was surrounded by you know three sisters and a brother and a, a, a mother who will, when she passes, will take over God's job. She's so magnificent. Uh, and we were just surrounded by love and with not much of anything else. Um, and. Um, so I think I'm reasonably well adjusted because of that. So, um, so it, 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 I had a cool childhood playing on a ball, not much, you know, playing with somebody else's football usually, uh, and uh, lots of friends around. Just a just a ordinary working class blue collar upbringing. It was rather lovely. And in fact, you were at one point destined to be, and well, were an electrician, but that's yeah. that's the path that you were. That you were going on, what for, for 
as a lifetime job or what is it? How did you yeah. see it at the time? Um, I, 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 was, I did that for 11 years. I didn't start acting until I was um, 29. Um, and um, Africa was the was the reason for that. I went to live in Africa. My first time on an airplane was going to Africa. I was married before I was on a plane. Yet I go back to the blue collar thing. Um, and uh, three and a half years working in the bush. Uh, and for a year and a half, one of the areas I looked after was a um, was the safari park, the, the national park in uh, Zimbabwe, which is the size of Belgium. Um, and uh, 16,000 elephants. So when there's a little little electrician coming along from Dublin who's got, uh, given a Land Rover Defender and driving around looking after the, the big five. Put it, I was putting in wells and boreholes for animals and all that sort of thing. So a little bit of culture shock. That's um, incredible. What an opportunity. How did it come about? Yeah. They, they, it was four years. Uh, this was years before you were born, Natalie. It was 1984. Um, um, the uh, that was four years after independence and uh, with the exodus uh, of the white population uh, after um, uh, Robert Mugabe came to power, they had and the, the whites kept all the good jobs for themselves as they did in South Africa. Um, uh, they all started to leave, uh, so they were short. They didn't have people to run their networks. So that's what I used to do. I used to do kind of high voltage, actually. If you look, if you remember Close Encounters of the Third Kind, do you remember that wonderful movie, that Steven Spielberg movie? One of the aliens, the famous. I need to see um, it. Oh, it? for God's sake. It's a, it's a classic. It's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant movie. Anyway, the start of my, my lockdown viewing. <laughs> yes, you should. It's, it's, it's a brilliant, brilliant movie. Um, and um, uh, so the job that Richard Dreyfus does in the start of that, uh, out in his van with his ladders looking after all the electricity. Basically, I did the job that Richard Drivers did in Close Encounters. So I did it for three and a half years, came back to my little van driving around Dublin. Um, Why did you come back? And, uh, I, it was a three and a half year contract. Right. Or a three year contract, and I stayed an extra few months. Um, and they offered me promotion, offered me all sorts of things to stay. But it started to feel like home. Um, and I, I, I didn't want two homes. I really thought that if I was in Dublin, I'd miss there. And if I was there, I'd miss Dublin. I was already missing Dublin. So I, I just, I didn't want to be stuck in the middle. You know what I mean? I didn't want to be not happy anywhere. So I came back uh, and realized after a month <laughs> that maybe I hadn't made the right decision. <laughs> and so I was looking for a, for a hobby. And there was an ad on the back of a newspaper for an acting school. So I did it literally just as a distraction, just to keep my, you know, keep the boredom at bay. And um, and then I just, when I started doing it, I started falling in love with it. I didn't, it turned into something I didn't imagine it would be. I just loved the problem solving. And um, and then as it went on, um, I started to notice, well, it, it, when I started going to F1, I started to notice how similar the lifestyles are. This, the circus, the getting on planes, the traveling, the hitting somewhere, the mental amount of work and then getting the hell out of there and going somewhere else on the next job. And so there's a, I feel a certain, as regards the circus aspect of it, I feel a certain, I feel a huge amount of affinity to it because I kind of, you know, same in your game, same in F1, same in my game, you, you kind of, it attracts misfits. But I mean that, <laughs> no, but you know, I mean that, in a, no, but I mean that in the best sense, you know, people that don't fit into the normal nine to five, um, uh, office, whatever it may be, and God bless them. 
if if they're um, happy with that, then I'm delighted for them. I wasn't, so I had to do something else. That's so true. So you were driven by the, the, the excitement of it all, and, and there's an element of jeopardy to it, isn't there? You don't know where your next job's yeah. coming from, but that keeps you on your toes. Oh, yeah, it does keep you on your toes. It keeps, uh, it keeps the tummy rumbling, yeah. Did you um, have any aspirations before that course to be an actor? Like even when you were young, did you put, put on shows for the family, or were you a show pony? Did you like the escapism of acting? No, no, it was completely for um, survival tactics in school. Uh, because of my socio-economic bracket, there was a couple of naughty boys, as there is in all these troublesome schools. So I, I, I took the class clown route. So. Um, and my performing was to protect my ass, as they say. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I, you learn to tell jokes. And I was kind of small and I was a late developer and stuff like that. So I was easy to pick on. So the only way around that was to be kind of class clown. So I think that helped. I did, I did my apprenticeship trying to save myself from getting the crap beaten out of me, you know. <laughs> and when did you realise that actually you're onto something here? You were pretty good at it and you could potentially make a career out of it. Um, well, naivety is a wonderful thing. I was enjoying it so much that I never thought that I could um, feed myself or anything like that. I was just so hungry for knowledge of how to do it and um, and how to do it properly. And, and you know, instinct is very important, as is luck. Um, but but it seemed to feed my instincts, uh, the the acting thing, and 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 I like the co the collaborative aspect. Um, because uh, it is, you know, it's a big, it's a same as, you know, same as that phone, it's a big team thing. Uh, and it doesn't take much to bring the whole house of cards down. So, um, so I love that aspect of it. And it, it just, it just, it's bizarre. It just seemed to suit me. Do you know what I mean? I found something that suited me. Yeah. Um, and, and 30 years, 30 years later that I'm doing it, I'm kind of, I still have the same kind of passion for it. I still, I, I'm still embarrassed about people, you know, who haven't seen anything I've done. They go, you know, so what is it you do? And through gritted, clenched teeth, I tell them I'm an actor. It just, it just seems so pretentious, even to me now, doing it 30 years. I love acting. I love the process. I love the, you know, seeing the results. I love hearing the screams and laughter, laughter of people when they see the work and all that sort of stuff. And occasionally um, making people question their preconceptions about things. I love all that sort of stuff, but, but, um, and as I say, it just kind of, you know, it, it kind of, uh, I just took to it. I just took to it. Like I, I had a voracious appetite for my lack, lack of knowledge about the process. So, um, so that's fun. It's interesting, um, how acting can offer so much and, and be so individual, I suppose, in the sense that people get into it for such different reasons, some fame hungry, mm -hmm. and there's obviously, some would, that would argue there's that narcissistic element to it, but something yeah. you on there was the, the, the collaborative element to it, the team side, mm -hmm. something that you thrived on, but also just shifting perception. I love that as an idea that you're able to yeah. act conduit for that. You're, you're able to actually influence, and you, you also touched on earlier, you're, you're quite politically charged. So mm. it's obviously in you to want to make a difference in some way. And you found acting yeah, uh, yeah. doing that. Yeah, acting is really yeah, it's really cool. I mean, it's I I still I still am of the opinion that I was a lot more useful to society when I was an electrician. I could actually make people's like practical problems go away. You know, when they no electricity, the joy and um, 
that you'd bring to people. Um, there is a weirdness to that. I remember when I was in Africa, one of the one of the, one of the greatest joys that I have was because um, I worked. I, I barely was on a tarmac road. It was all you know, graded road, dust roads, and all that. And I used to go to these literally these uh, mud-built villages. <coughs> um, and I used to love doing this for the ladies. They, 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 they you would see, you've seen it on Nat Geo stuff and all that. Um, these, it's like a mortar and pestle, but a huge one, uh, with these ladies smashing down the maize to try and make this mealy meal. Um, they call it sadza. They used to call it. It's, um, it's a bit like polenta. Um, but they would, they would have to hammer this stuff, and the, the, the very physical work. Um, and I had the great pleasure of um, some people would come before me and they would build a little, like a little hut, like a garden shed. And inside there was a motor, electric motor with a milling machine. But we'd never tell them. I used to always tell the guys, don't tell them what we're doing. So the people would arrive, and these were usually government funded things, put them in, and then I would go along uh, and connect them up because of the high voltage electricity. And then I would say to the ladies, can somebody bring me a 50 kilo bag of maize? And they would look at me and go, okay. And they would bring it along. And I would fill this hopper at the top uh, after connecting it. And I'd go, can, can you get the ladies? Uh, and I'd get all the ladies uh, in the square. And, I, and they would be all wondering, what, what is this white guy doing here in his van, <laughs> um, in his Land Rover? Uh, and I would let them see me filling the hopper. And then I would flick the switch. And in like 15 seconds, 50 kilo bag would go <clears throat> into a bag underneath. And I used to bring the bag out and the ladies would just look there would be this silence, this wide eye. They would look at each other and start squealing for joy because I'd just, I'd, I'd just given them basically a half a day of every day free that they could go. And, of course, as we know, the women just do and, do and did most of the work in these villages. Um, they not could go and plant, villages. they could go and dig. Not just yeah, I know, everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> I know. That's my point. That's my point. Um, and they would go and... Um, they would have a free half their half their day would be free, and so I, I had gorgeous moments like that. So there the, the, the would be nearly crying coming out to me, the ladies. It was really the job satisfaction was really cool. I tell you so what, I used to get things like that. You're a great storyteller because I had such strong images then of everything you just yeah. described. That's beautiful. And, and when yeah. did you feel that your your first break came in acting? When was the the, the role that you really first punched the air to? It's kind of funny because when I started up, when I the the guys that in the acting school came to me at the end of two years and go, look, you've no choice, you have to go for it, you know, um, just because I was showing promise or whatever. Um, and then I went to do some electrical work for a theatre company. After I wanted to see the day in day out, literally the practice of getting a show together, a theatre show. And as luck would have it, one of the guys um, got a rather well paid job in a television show while he was supposed to be doing this play. And it was a play about a guy who'd been away from Ireland, Dublin, working class, drove a motorbike. I used to, I was driving it my own, my Ducati at the time. Um, and uh, uh, and the lead guy disappeared <coughs> to the uh, very large annoyance of the theatre director. Um, he was also my year head for my second year. Uh, and he said, do you want to get in here and do this? So literally I was, um, I was plucked. I was plucked, Natalie. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I did that, and then so I mean, literally a couple of people. So six months after I started, after I kind of jacked the job, as we say, 
um, somebody from the Royal Court came over and saw me in a play. Um, and I was offered a, a two-hander um, uh, in the Royal Court in Sloan Square uh, on the main stage. And I'd never even been in a theatre in England. Never mind. My first time in a theatre in England was on the main stage in uh, in the Royal Court in, in uh, Sloan Square. I know exactly where you so, mean. Um, yeah. So, so from there, I went back to the Bush Theatre and uh, I was doing a, a trilogy of Irish plays there and some some uh, BBC producers saw me and I was whisked and, and my first kind of break, I suppose, the BBC was a, a thing called Roughnecks, which was about oil rig workers in the North Sea. And we had some wonderful people in there, Ricky Tomlinson and um, all sorts of people. Yeah, it was, um, it was really cool. So we filmed on, on an oil rig in the North Sea. Yeah, that'll drive you mad. Right, it will. Tell me, tell me one thing, really simple question. When you're on stage, yep. it's a bit different when you it's te- television or film, but have you ever had a moment where you've forgotten your lines? And what do you do? What mechanisms do actors have to learn lines? My, uh, I've had two spectacular <laughs> disasters. Um, my first performance in... Uh, the Royal Court in Sloan Square, as I, as I was telling you, we it was um, uh, a political two-handers, basically two actors on stage. Um, and when they were pulling up the safety court and it got stuck just as we were about to go on, we had no previews. My first, my first, the press night, you know, every theatre you get previews, right? So you get to get the show up to speed and whatever, and they didn't have time for it. So my first time ever doing it in front of was when the press were in which is deeply, deeply mean to do to an actor, to do to anybody. Um, and the curtain wouldn't come up. And we stood in the wings for 35 minutes because they couldn't find the, the electrical motor went to lift up this heavy fire curtain. Which, and they you, couldn't find the handle. I was going to say, but you could probably fix that given your ability. Or... Not when you're about to, when you're already buttock clenched before you go on, shall we say. Um, <laughs> And I went on uh, so full of nerves and having to stand in the wings for 35 minutes before we did it. When I went on stage and I started talking, there's a, there's a, there's a famous thing with actors that the voice on your, on your shoulder, I think it'll have it in a lot of professions, that telling you you're no good and you're going to, you know, you don't deserve it and you're only got here because somebody else died or whatever it may be. Um, and <clears throat> I'd never heard the voice before until I was standing in front of a bit. 800 people in front of stage and I just started a speech on my own while the other actor is supposed to be in the bathroom in this hotel and I'm standing there and I heard I literally I could I put my hand on a stack of bibles and say those I heard a voice it was a real voice I mean I know it wasn't but I on a stack of bibles and I and just little voice on my shoulder said you said that already said that line already and it was just like what it was like it was like the, I, <clears throat> I heard someone standing beside me whispering in my ear you can imagine what that feels like. Um, and I just stopped dead. Uh, and it was two ways. And then the voice immediately said, just just go, just leave. What can I do? Uh, like completely undermining me. Um, uh, uh, and I went, uh, I, I literally had that conversation. This all probably happened in a, in a space of two and a half, three seconds. And I just went, where was I? And I continued on. Uh, and the next time it hit me, uh, it was stress uh, that time, first time. And the next time was in front of 1,500 people in, in, uh, in Stratford-upon-Avon when I was doing As You Like It. 
uh, and I have this speech. Um, and in the middle of the speech, I just went just completely blank. I just had no idea what I was saying, what I had been saying, what I was supposed to say, and uh, where I was in the scene. Uh, and I did what any true professional does. I started improvising Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not even Shakespeare improvised Shakespeare. So I did that for a, a couple of seconds. What happened? With, I remember, well, my fellow actress, Neve Cusack, God bless her, the woman, she was born on stage. Or, you know, she's a, a dynasty of theatre acting. Yeah. And I remember, because it's just me and her on the stage, and I remember her turning like this. As I started improvising Shakespeare, I saw this. <laughs> like, looking at me like, what are you doing? And I'm looking at her with my eyes pleading, help me, for the love of Jesus, help me. Uh, but she was kind of enjoying, it's like enjoying. <laughs> I remember thinking, I'm going to strangle you when I get off the stage. So she left me hanging for a bit. Probably about five seconds and then just came in. It's utterly professional, but enjoyed it just a little too much for my liking, well, and was enjoying me. See, I think she was looking at me kind of going, what is this guy going to come out with next? In front of 1,500 feet off, oh, appalling. And I bet those but, five seconds felt like an eternity, didn't they? Oh, forever, man. It just it, it felt like I could have, yeah, I could have, yeah, anything. I could have gone to the moon and back in the time it felt, yeah. Horrific, horrific. Yeah. And and what about um, films? I remember seeing you, and it wasn't actually that long ago, but in The Guard. Did you yeah. Know? Oh, I love Megan The Guard. It was gorgeous. Yeah, lovely Mark Strong. We were the drug dealers. Myself, and, where Brendan Gleeson played The Guard, and then uh, and myself and, and glorious um, Mark Strong as well. It was my first time sort of getting to work with him, and he was, he was an absolute joy. Yeah, in the west of Ireland. with. Yeah, just beautiful, beautiful writing, and you know, it's it's always about the writing with with movies and about the story, and it was just wonderfully written and cynical and dark and black comedy, comedy, you know, and 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 funnily violent, you know, just ridiculous violence in it. Um, yeah, when you read those, when they come in, you kind of go, you don't, you get onto your edge and then go, no one else is doing this. What is it about the human psyche that? Um enjoys that kind of dark humor because i never thought i would never describe myself as enjoying it yeah. and yet every time i watch it i laugh is it be is it because i don't know you, you you can kind of release a bit of tension through that that it's happening to somebody else it's happening to somebody else yeah. it's a bit like it's a bit like somebody if you know somebody's what do we you know the old joke is somebody slipping on a banana skin yeah. i mean it's never not going to be funny and yet it's somebody else's tragedy you know, um, there's a there's a famous um, uh, I think it was the Beast from the East. Do you remember that a few yeah. years ago? The 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 the, the, the uh, horrible weather we had when everywhere was iced over, and there was a live uh, newscast that was on Irish news here, and it's gone around the world. It went viral. And you may well have seen it with this guy going. And unfortunately, we people have got to be really careful out there. And behind, there's a guy doing this behind like that. Do you remember seeing that? And the guy goes up in the air and comes smack down right over his shoulder. It was like, you couldn't have timed it better. And he goes down. Well, here's, here's the sense of humor in Ireland. Apparently, I haven't seen it yet, but apparently at like the exact spot where that guy fell, they put up a blue plaque to his, uh, yeah, to his fall. And it's there forever. This is the man who, the man who fell on, RT, on Irish television news. 
um, <laughs> fell at this point. They've given him his own blue plaque. It's probably the greatest moment of his life. Do you know, maybe it's such a crazy world and there's, there's a lot of sadness and strife. We just do need to find the humour in these things. Yeah, you absolutely have to. Listen, to there's a few mates of mine and I know there's a lot of... Listen, everything, I'm the same as everybody else, the same as yourself. Um, the world has kind of stopped for us. The world, when I say the world, you know, the, the things we do to feed our children and... and uh, and to keep us busy and all that sort of thing. And I'm the same. Everything's fallen out uh, from our perspective because all the stuff we do is very close and all that, you know. Um, so you mean work stopped completely? Completely, absolutely, 100%. Yeah, gone. Everything's gone. Um, and there's two ways of looking at it. You can even either get depressed about it or kind of go, you know what? I have an opportunity to stand back um, and just kind of reevaluate things. And just kind of go, okay, like what's actually important? Uh, and you know, with the with the F1 thing, there's so much running around, getting on planes, missing this, missing that. There's there's a there's if there's a million people would look at the lifestyle that you have, and even what I do, and kind of go, I don't want that. It's just too it's too much grief mm. uh, for what you get. But but you sometimes things that are worth doing are worth doing even more because they're difficult they're tricky they're they're not easy and you test yourself i mean that's that's the only thing i'm miss, missing now is a kind of a challenge you know at, at the moment but i'm actually getting spent i'm cooking with my son i'm i'm constantly every day trying to get my two sons out the back garden to to, to try and change my rainforest accidental rainforest <laughs> uh to try and dig it up i'm actually thinking because god knows how long this will go on for if, planting a few vegetables and you know maybe uh, getting a, a greenhouse or something and, uh, and all that not not from survival for some reasons of survival but actually i've got an opportunity yeah yeah it's quite uh, we've just we've just been planting some tomato seeds and we've started a little yeah. herb garden you know perhaps yeah not, perhaps not the herb that i'd, I'd want to be growing but <laughs> yeah that's a bit tricky for everybody at the moment i believe so yeah. i hear yeah <laughs> Obviously, the the massive career seismic shift in your in your life was was Game of Thrones. But you, yeah. this is going back to sort of what 2011, 2012. You came in for yeah, season. Yeah, around Tell me how that came about, and uh, how did you feel about working in the fantasy genre? That was something pretty new to you. New to me. It was absolutely new to me. When my agent rang me up and said, look, I have this thing coming over with dragons and this. And I said, let me stop you there. Let me stop you. I think, let me save your breath. And she went, no, leave, please read it, read it. And she said, look, it's HBO. And people who, you know, made The Sopranos and et cetera, et cetera, everything. Uh, wonderful, gorgeous stuff. And I said, right, well, I'll give it a read. Um, and when I read it, I went, this is... Uh, the writing again it's always the writing if you're worth your salt it's it's always the story that's how I mainly turn down things because the stuff's not on the page um, and it's about power it's about legacy it's about family it's about it's it's a it's a bit like in a strange way it's a bit like the sopranos which I'm just enjoying at the moment I've never watched it I'm enjoying it now it's great um uh, and I really like that aspect of it that it was this strange place where these Remarkable things happen. You, you, we couldn't tell the story without we did tell, set in a modern kind of you know three-piece suit world. Uh, it wouldn't work. Um, 
but when I when I read it, I went up and met them. I said, "Yeah, I'll have a bit of this." I went up and met met them for and for not the part that I played, another yeah. part. And um, oh. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They all want to know that. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, I'm not telling you. Um, no, it was it was played brilliantly. They were actually right. They came back to me, and I thought it was used the usual Hollywood uh, Jake off. You know the old goodbye. Um, and I said, look, we're going to go the, another direction with this part, but we want you to come back uh, and have a chat with you for the next season. And I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is don't call us, we'll call you. Um, and surely uh, enough, they they called me back and said, look, we're starting a new season, second season. Uh, will you come up and have a chat with us? Uh, and I went up and we did another meeting and I, I met them again. And uh, and hence I ended up as Davos Seaworth, yeah, the smuggler. Um, and it has been, it's been bizarre. Yes, as I like to say, it's, it, it took me about 25 years to become an overnight success. <laughs> how surprised are you by just how big Game of Thrones became? Everyone was. Anybody dares tell you that they knew it was going to be a success is a filthy liar because nobody knows. That's up to the audience, and usually, and maybe a little help from the critics and stuff. Um, but pe people, I think people latched onto it because the the characters. Um, it was difficult to work them out. We didn't, you know, in our show, the the the, the bad guy wasn't wearing the black hat, and the good guy wasn't wearing the white hat, and you found yourself. I mean, if you look at the first season with, you know, Ned Stark and uh, when the guy we've been following as the lead character ends up decapitated before the end of the first season, that's when people went, sorry, what's going on here? You don't kill the leading man. What? And it kind of blew the top off. But it also meant as a viewer that all bets were off. Mm. Um, nobody was safe. You couldn't, you, you, where, do you, where do you, you know, where do you put your, your loyalty? And like Jamie, even um, who I think you met, um, Nikolai, gorgeous Danish man. You the Monaco Grand Prix. I did, yeah. I brought it. Yes, I was the ugliest one there. Yes, I brought Kit Harrington, and I brought Nikolai Costa Waldau too, as my mother would call them, handsome Harrys. <laughs> um, I brought them with me, and and then and then Julie discovered that I became invisible. Yeah, <laughs> 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 uh, but Nikolai's character, Jamie. Yeah. He was despicable, despicable yeah. in the yeah. first. You hated him. Yeah. Uh, and and then you know the the whole all the stuff with Brienne with Gwendolyn, uh, where you kind of and then you kind of go as an as a you know as a punter you're watching kind of going oh maybe I was a bit hasty here there could be a, a chink of humanity in this guy and then you you know so there was things shifting all along you know, um, I, you know as well as that. The, sorry. Well, I know, I was just going to say, I think I actually said that to him in Monaco. I said, look, I, I really wanted to hate you. And then I really fell in love with you. We all did. And then yeah, it just yeah. came back to the fact you were shagging your sister. And uh, <laughs> kind of went, I know, it's insane. But it's true. You were like, how yeah. rooting for this guy who's done so many despicable things. And it's all because I of the woman who is heinous. Yeah. But it's a woman, yeah. actually his sister. His it's twin sister. Yeah, there you go. Ah! Yeah, I know it's it's awful, but at the same time, dramatically, you know, these things kind of put you as as a viewer, you kind of look at it and go, the cheek of them asking me to have any sort of empathy or sympathy with a with a guy or the girl, you know, uh, I mean, look at Arya. 
when I, I, I meet lots of, lots of young girls kind of took her as a role model, right? Because she was, you know, she ballsy, she, she uh, tiny and yet took them. And I went, oh, so this is a role model. Oh, yeah. She's great. Nothing to keep her out. I said, you do realize that she's actually a serial killer. She has a list of people that she's going through, yeah. murdering them as she goes along. And she's your role model. And people laugh. And that's what it is about bending perceptions, about when you're watching something like that, you kind of got the cheek of you. And I, it, like in my case, when I was reading it, you, you kind of have a respect that the producers didn't make it easy for themselves. George or Martin, who wrote the books, didn't make it easy for himself. He, didn't make, he, he wrote characters that he didn't make easy to like or love or even have empathy with. But you kind of got to you kind of go, well, okay, okay. I mean, Cersei is a horrible killer, but you kind of understand her motivation because she was completely obsessed about her children. Mm. And as a you know, any mother watching watching that character, you you you, you kind of go, yeah, there, she's doing horrible things, but I I get why she's doing them, and that's what the clever thing is that that you can watch. People, how close can you get to the edge of madness while trying to protect your family or whatever it may be? Uh, and that's what's good drama. That's what good drama is. It does. It really keeps you on your toes, and it and it does go back to the old adage that everyone is as they are for a reason. Um, I tell yeah. you what, I think your character is one of the few that is consistently likable. Um, even you got yeah. a shady past. Um, <laughs> you, you you endured, and and I love that. I love the fact that yeah. you were in from season two right till the very end. Yeah. Were you, did you enjoy playing that character as a part of you that wanted someone a bit more Machiavellian? No, no. Listen, I've done the bad. Listen, with a head like this, you're going to be doing a lot of body roles. Uh, so to be brought in as this uh, as this uh, this voice of reason, uh, and I I love the idea that he, you know, when we met him, he couldn't even read or write. Uh, and yet, <clears throat> I love the idea of of this this guy from a uh, from Flea Bottom, the worst you know slum in King's Landing, mm. that he had more nobility uh, and decency and loyalty about him than all the heavily educated um, people who are who are wealthy and had you know kings and queens and princes and lords and all that sort of stuff. And yet, this guy came in and and. Uh, had a streak, a streak of, of decency in him, and, and uh, he, he, he I, I loved us. He was more noble than most of the rest of them put together, um, and, and wasn't afraid to speak his speak his mind to his boss, hard truths and all that stuff. Yeah, I love the the subplot with um, with him and um, Stannis's daughter. That was a, a Shireen, Yeah. Oh, they did terrible things. They killed me. I read that in this chair I'm sitting in. Uh, when they sent it down, what happened when the the end of that relationship? I mean, if anybody hasn't watched it yet, I don't. There's about four people out there still haven't watched it yet, so I'm not going to give too much away, just in case. Um, but but I was in floods of tears reading what happened in that, you know. And then when we came to, uh, uh, oh, I did. I do. I give you a laugh. I did a terrible thing to my daughter. Uh, I'm well known as a thief. Uh, on on the set, I'm I'm the most successful thief from Game of Thrones set. I've I have stuff all over the house um, that I stole um, uh, from set. But one of the things I got was, uh, I don't know if you remember, but I carved Shireen um, a, um, a stag, a stag. So I gave my daughter this burnt stag, uh, obviously just after we'd finished filming, which wasn't going to hit the TV until months and months later. 
So when I gave it to her, my daughter in, in her room upstairs has her wall of awesome. She keeps all her stuff, all her uh, nerdy stuff, big nerd. She's a video game designer, big, big nerd. Um, and uh, when the episode came on, <clears throat> I obviously wasn't there when they were filming it. I'd read it about a year before and broken hearted. And I wasn't there when they filmed it because for obvious reasons, I'm not part of the scene. But when I was when I was coming on, I went. Uh, I said, "Do you remember the stagger I gave it?" She said, "Yeah." I said, "It's probably a good idea to get it now." She said, "What do you mean?" And she went, "I said, one, just get it." I'd completely slipped my mind what was about to happen, uh, and she had the she had the actual stag burnt stag in her hand. Uh, no, sorry, the the stag. Yeah, the stag. Uh, uh, I got two stags. The carved one and the burnt one. Burnt was for the following season, and I said, "Go and get your stag." And she sat there with the stag in her hand as as Shireen is walking. And when I was watching it, I, my eyes were filling up and I looked down the end of the side. I just realized all of a sudden, oh my God, I just gave my own daughter the stag. And she was down in the end, inconsolable, dying on the sofa. And I felt like, I felt like I'd beaten my daughter up. It was terrible. How, how old was she watching it? Uh, well, she's 27 now. <laughs> <laughs> so she was like, she was like, what, 24? <laughs> she wasn't a kid. <laughs> but she, she idolised the show. I know, I yeah. She, what, yeah. I tell you what, I probably <laughs> sobbed in that scene and it just actually made me stop any kind of loyalty or rooting for Stannis in that very moment. Yeah. I, I can't yeah. this guy. There's, it, there's nothing he can do now that will win me yeah. back over. Yeah, it's true. It's true, yeah. yeah. I know, that, well, that's what... Davos stayed loyal to him. Yeah, that's he did his job. Yeah, but he didn't want to go. He didn't want to go. He did try and fight him to. He was shouted at to leave. He knew something was up. But you gotta, you know, you gotta yeah. play the piper. Oh yeah. God. Um. And so, how much are you aware of the bigger picture when you're filming these scenes? How how aware of you of everything else that's going on and playing together? It's the first time that you actually see it in its entirety when it's broadcast. Yeah, I see it at the same time. Listen, we got up, we said our, because you know, um, Sky did the um, simulcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, they were on at whatever, two o'clock in the morning, I think, uh, the six episodes. I'd seen, I'd seen the first one because I went to New York for the premiere. That was huge, mental. Um, uh, we took over Radio City there. It's very strange. Anyway, for the five, the next five ones after I flew back, um, in our house, we all watch it on the sofa. My youngest is kind of 19 now. Uh, and uh, so we all set our alarms for like 1.15 in the morning. We came down in our Winsiette pyjamas and our nighties and our toweling robes, uh, bleary-eyed with our hair out that way at 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, and we watched it live. We watched it the same as everybody else at 2 o'clock in the morning. Six of us in the sofa inside. And yeah. then... And how do you feel watching it back? Like, it obviously must be immense amount of pride. Is there an element of surprise? Are you as taken aback as, as we are as the fans of the show? Oh, well, I know, every, no, I know everything. I mean, you know, there, there's... Uh, I wouldn't do a job where I didn't wasn't in full possession of, like, the scripts. You know, there's a lot of... There's probably quite a few Hollywood movies where, you know, people are coming in doing two, three days. That's all they're given because they're so scared about the story getting out. Um, and they were scared with errors as well, but... <clears throat> they, at least they, you know, they paid us the courtesy of. I, I have always had all the scripts. I knew exactly what was going to happen before from day one of shooting. 
Um, so you know what's going to happen, but you don't know how they're going to shoot it. You don't know how it's going to be acted. You don't know how, you know, what music is going to be on top of it. So it's like layers, you know, we know the story. We know how it's going to, it's, you know, it's a bit like people who read the books. Um, you know, you know, what's kind of going to transpire, but you, um, you, you love seeing other people's imaginations being layered on top of it, you know? So, so that, that was it. Absolutely brilliant. Always enjoyable. Brilliant stuff. Um, and so what next for you? Work-wise? Uh, obscurity. Stop it. That's never going to happen. <laughs> um, I have um, a couple of things coming out. I've just been working for Mr. Sky. Um, I've been in China. Thank God I finished. Um, uh, I've been doing a, a really interesting thing in Rome. In Cinecita Studios, which is the famous Federico Fellini, Fellini and Sergio Leone used to film in Rome, uh, and I'm, it's a thing called Domina that is um, a Sky production, uh, and it is ancient Rome, uh, but uh, told from the perspective of the women, which is really interesting uh, because there were, as we know, incredibly powerful women uh, operating in a very patriarchal society. So it's a 10-part series, uh, and I play the father of the uh, lead lady in it, Livia. Oh, nice. um, so, but that, they're, they're on hiatus now because of the coronavirus, and they've had to stop production. They had to stop shooting. I finished all my stuff literally at Christmas time. Um, so all my stuff was done then. But uh, God love them, they still have to finish, they still have to finish the piece. However, uh, one other thing that I did finish which will be out later on, just after summer. Excuse me. As a pano raison earlier on. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> uh, I did a gorgeous, I've done a, I love a heist movie, right? Bank robbing movie. Yeah. So with, with the lovely Freddie Highmore, you know, the good doctor and yeah. Bates Motel, all that very boyish looking, uh, gorgeous guy. I've known him since he was about nine. His mother used to be my agent years and years and years ago. Um, and uh, so we are robbing the Bank of Spain. We're robbing um, uh, the bank in, in Madrid, in the central bank. Um, so uh, I'm doing a heist movie on the streets of Madrid. So we finished that. Um, there's a, I think there's a trailer on YouTube. However, it's not in English. It's me with a dubbed Spanish. I don't know why. But it's called Way Down. But it's a proper heist movie. Lots of guns, lots of zip lines, all that sort of stuff, you know. Uh, so I'm looking forward. You do love a heist. Uh, you won a BAFTA with Michael Fassbender, didn't you? For your your um. Yeah, for a heist. Yeah, for a heist. They got pitch black heist. Yeah, yeah. That's uh. Yeah, I think you can see that on YouTube. But I think you can see that for nothing. It's really well worth seeing. We won, yeah, we won the BAFTA for best short for that. Uh, and it's really good. It's very funny. Michael's fantastic, isn't it? Um, and it's a little ten minute long thing. And I think you can find it. It's in black and white. Don't adjust your laptop. Um, uh, and it's uh, it's really good. And BAFTA liked it and gave us the gave us the award for it. Yeah. And Michael, another F one fan. Let's talk about your passion for Formula One. Where on earth did it come from? Yeah. Actually, his well, I had passion for race. Uh, oh, that came from. Um, well, it was either be an actor. It's much cheaper to be an actor than a Formula One driver. <laughs> Although you can possibly make more money acting. Um, um, it's uh, I just love I love technology I love engineering you know my background is engineering um, 
and again the circus thing, the collaborative thing, um, and um, yeah, I just I don't know. I had this, and it's incredibly glamorous, you know, as well, uh, and which is a bit like Hollywood. I don't know. Maybe it's like I don't know. Maybe it's my mindset or whatever. But I was very blessed. I I I, I ended up in in the paddock because of Bernie Eccleston. A lot of people think it was because, you know, as a friend of Eddie Jordan, I became a friend of Eddie through Bernie. Uh, and I did a, a beautiful, for any of your viewers out there, uh, especially the dads, because there's not many dad-daughter movies. I did a beautiful movie with um, Alfonso Cuaron, who did Gravity, uh, and won the uh, Oscar, didn't he won the Oscar for uh, Roma and all that. Um, anyway, fantastic director. And I did this daddy-daughter movie, which is uh, Francis Hodgson Burnett, uh, Secret Garden, all that. Uh, and it's really, it's a parent-daughter movie, single parent. Uh, and it's one of the most glorious things I've ever done, a beautiful movie. Uh, and we had a royal premiere in London. So uh, um, Sarah Ferguson at the time, uh, Andrew's ex, um, uh, she, he, uh, she was part of the charity and she said, uh, there's another guy here. You probably don't know him, Bernie Eccleston. Uh, and I went, what? What? Did you want to meet him? And I went, yeah. So uh, I went over and he literally, he got, got the napkin, literally got the napkin. And he said, have you ever, are you looking forward to the new season? I said, yeah. He said, do you go to many races? I said, I've never been to a race. And he literally took the napkin out, put his number down on it and said, any Grand Prix you ever want to go to, just call that number. And how long and, did that? That was 24 years ago. Wow. I use it every year. I wow. use it all the time. I used, yeah, because I used to, as you know, I used to do a bit, when I could, I, do a bit, I did about five a year. Uh, I've managed to get my addiction down to about three. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, but I, I still get up, like, uh, you know, Chinese races, uh, Japanese races. I, I'll set my, I, you know, I, I, I watch qualifying. I get up at four in the morning to watch the qualifying. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a silly nerd, yeah. Love it. What was the film? What was the film called? The father-daughter one. Oh, a little princess. A little princess. Okay. Yeah, it's a beautiful movie. Patrick Doyle did the music. You know, did the uh, wonderful, wonderful British um, composer. And his daughter sings on it and all sorts of stuff. It's gorgeous, gorgeous movie. It'll have you in tears. Well, it's great. It, I've, I've scribbled that down. I don't need to cry yeah. anymore. Okay, I, I, well, I made... everything, every <laughs> single thing that comes on the telly at the moment, I'm just Oh, sorry. Yeah, I'll have you on floods of tears on this, Natalie, I promise you. Oh. But for all the right reasons. Okay. It's a weepy, a good weepy, a good weepy. So, obviously, this season, uh, you know, like every, like every other live sport, is just, you know, hanging... Catastrophe. Catastrophe. It's, it's, it's very sad. Obviously, there are, there are much bigger things at stake, but um, yeah. what do you think, kind of coronavirus aside what do you think about the current state of, of formula one and who kind of excites you who are you kind of i know that you 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 come to a lot of the races as a guest of mercedes yeah. and ferrari they're the the, the the two teams that you follow closely um yeah. how racing you? point don't forget force india racing point eddie you, jordan i've watched that go right through and andy stevenson would kill me if i don't give him a mention um yeah no 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 they've been, they've been very kind to me other people at racing or aston martin as they're going to be called now Exactly. Um, oh, lovely. I wonder will they change it. Yeah, I'd love to see a green car out there, an Aston Martin green Formula One car. How sexy would that be? That would be gorgeous. I British like, racing green on I the tarmac. Any How car, lovely. Any car at all would do me. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're getting withdrawal symptoms. Anyway, yeah, who, yeah. which drivers have really caught your attention? 
Oh, well, listen, obviously, Max is maturing into a, a machine, a nuclear weapon of a driver. And he still drives like he's 17. He will not, if he sees a gap, he'll put the car on its side to get it through. Uh, and I love that. And it's the same with Lewis. One of the things, Lewis can be, he's fantastic. Look, he's well on the road to becoming a legend. He's a magnificent, multiple world champion, but I don't use the word legend much. There's very few of them in Formula One, but he's, he's, he's that close to it. Um, um, what I love about Lewis is that if he's leading from the front when Mercedes are at their best and they're out, they just go off into the distance. When he comes back in, it's the car, it's the this, that, and the other. Everything came together, the, the usual this, that, and the other, which is understandable. But when he's got a fight on his hands, when Lewis comes back in after having a, having a row with Max or whoever it may be or, or Seb, you can see his eyes are what He loves a fight. Lewis, and that's right. I used to love that about Nigel Mansell. I always said it, it's terrible. It's probably a terrible thing to say. I don't think I'd be delighted to be locked in a lift with Nigel Mansell. But put him in a racing car. <clears throat> There's a reason the Italians call him the British Lion. He's just relentless. He's like a dog with a bone in a car. He's a racer. And there's there's many of them there that aren't racers, but but you know Lewis is a you know died in the wall. It's in in his bones that he's a racer, and I love that. I love that about him. It's just that that driven thing to win. Uh, uh, so Lewis is look. He's he's a godlike stature now at this stage. Uh, Max is getting there. They've had to come up with the engine this this year, you know, and Adrian uh, has the right you know the right bits on the car. Um, and Charles Leclerc is very dangerous. Um, just one or two things going to happen with Seb. He's, he, he, Seb is either going to, you know, match the fight and pull pull something out, or or it's going to go the other way. Um, I would like to think that, Seb, and Seb's a racer as well. Seb's a proper proper racer. You're not you're not four times world champion just because you've got a good car under your ass. He, he's he's proper. He's proper proper. Uh, and I would love to see Seb step up to the plate. If Ferrari have got their few bits and pieces together uh, with, with this with, with this car, and I know there was a lot of talk at the beginning of the season that the the car doesn't seem to be working out as well as as they would have hoped. Um, <clears throat> I do not like this push pull steering wheel on a Mercedes. I think it's obscene. Uh, uh, I don't like it. I don't like it. It's it's against the spirit. Uh, of the racing. I like the fact but that... But I said that about the halo. I yeah, said that about the halo as well. Yeah, you're a purist. You don't like any change, but you get used to yeah. it very quickly. Yeah. Uh, no, I do like change. I like innovation. But but this, push the push the wheel to make... Mm, it's not... It's, it's aesthetically vile. Yeah, but anyway. <laughs> Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Listen, one thing that yeah. we doing um on sky f1 and actually it would be wicked to get you on one of our uh we do like these weekly panels with formula one for sky f1 yeah. so come on one of those yeah. um is um your your top five your top five rate drivers of all time yeah can you do that yeah. like on the spot can you i i think now yeah yeah. Uh, I, I loved uh, Mika Hakkinen. I've got a soft place in my heart for, for Mika. Um, um, because, I mean, there was a, quite a few quotes from that Hakkinen was the only man that Michael Schumacher was afraid of. 
uh, allegedly. Look, I didn't hear Michael saying it, but but um, but he was wonderful. Michael, there was something there was something so pure about him, and he has that naughty Scandinavian thing, which he gracefully handed on to Kimmy. Kimmy is Kimmy. I, I just I, I I love Kimmy. I love I love Kimmy for all the, all the mad reasons. He's he's. I mean, you guys, you must make your guys' job hell. But there's something unpretentious about the man. Uh, that, and he has a wicked, wickedly black sense of humour. There's a great video of him with him, <laughs> drunk <laughs> at the uh, at the award thing with Seb, with with the Ferrari thing when he was drunk on stage. The dude was at a party. He's supposed to drink. Just don't invite him up on stage. You guys are the people that made the mistake. Don't invite him up on stage. Don't give him a drink and then invite him up on stage. Invite him up on stage. Then give him the drink. If you, it's your own fault. Uh, and I just love that. There's no, there's no BS with the guy. Uh, and I know he's treating. Can we find this? Why can we find this? What's this? Oh, it's on, the, it's on YouTube. Just have a look. So yeah, it's, it's easy. Drunk. It uh, might... Yeah, just. Yeah, it was some award ceremony. But, and he's look, he's not obnoxious around like that, but. But you can tell that he's got a few on him. Oh, it's funny. It's funny as hell. And he's hanging out a Seb. He's trying to keep proceedings together. It's great. Uh, and I love that. I, you know, it's all... Uh, I kind of... I used to watch the tennis when, when you know, you had Vitas Gerolaitis and John McEnroe and Ilya Nastasi, all these maniacs who were playing. Uh, and, you know, in a sense, the, the, you know, the, the, the sport... Became so professional when there was so much money came in, and they're magnificent. Like when you look at Federer, and, you know, and, and various, and 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 the same with the ladies, is that they're they're sport machines. They're brilliant at what they do. They're incredibly clever. They're, but but um, you know, you miss a bit of a personality. You miss a bit of, you know, you miss a bit of falling over drunk. You miss a few f words, f bombs thrown around here and there. Um, and Kimmy still has that, you know. He's he's you know he's the last of the old school, really, you know. Uh, and he's he's uh, and he's a proper proper racer, you know. Since when he checked when he got his world championship, he went off and started rallying, you know. And then before he came back, and he loves being in a car, loves, uh, you know, very insumer. Um, I, I was lucky enough. Uh, you're talking about top five. I do, I do, I do ramble. Do apologise. Do apologise. Uh, when I was a guest of Mercedes at Monaco uh, a couple of years ago, it was my seventh fast bender, and we were up on the prep perch above the above the garages. Um, and it was the first time. It was. It was. I've actually got a photograph somewhere. I have the last close-up photograph of Michael Schumacher in. Uh, I was on the grid. And I have the last photograph, uh, because he just took off after we left the grid, of a close-up of Michael in his helmet for his last ever Monaco uh, that I took. Um, uh, and I have that somewhere. Uh, but but uh, I was lucky enough, uh, Ross, Braun, they, they gave us the headsets. So I had the, the actual team headsets on uh, while Michael was racing. And I listened to Schumacher in the car as he was going around during the race. It was the most extraordinary thing. I thought it was a tape recording. He's just so calm. He was so calm in the car, just going, where's, what's where is it? 
and just it was like he was an engineer on the wall. He was asking what tires various people were along the track. Is anybody coming up here far as they ahead? He's constantly talking. At going at with, with in Monaco, where there's no room for error, and he's talking like he's not even driving the car. Uh, he wasn't out of breath. He didn't seem to be struggling in any shape or form. And I'm kind of going, is this for real? I'd never. It was the first time. It was like it was a real, uh, really spoiled. Because myself, Fassbender was there that year, and the two of us were just kind of looking at each other, going, "How is he physically capable?" You know, it's not just this is the information. How close am I to the guy in front? This is like constantly uh, working out the working out the strategy in the car with the engineers in like in real time. Uh, I found that absolutely extraordinary. That uh, and his, you know, his physical well-being inside this car that's doing this at 180, 90 miles an hour. It was extraordinary. Uh, so you can't, anybody's list, you can't leave Schumacher off. No, I think, I think that the greats are just wired differently, aren't they? Yes, yeah, I think there is a bit of that. They're slightly mad. <laughs> In a good way, but mad. There is a madness to them. And I, I know I think, Michael was incredibly driven, incredibly competitive. I, see, I think that's your five then. So you're going you're gonna to go with Mika, not yeah. Nigel? No, no, hold on. Oh. Nigel. Yeah, I would. I, I, would I put him in the top five? Hold on. Um, I, suppose you, I suppose you could do. Yeah. And I, lo- I just love N- Nigel when he was taken on Senna. You know, it's the, he was this gorgeous brown uh, Brazilian guy who, you know, was touched by God and, you know, the girls loved and all that. And then you have Nigel coming in looking like a, a sergeant from a rural English police station. You know what I mean? With the big moustache and everything. He t- he's not, he, t- he didn't look like a, you know, he didn't look, Nigel never looked like he had a six pack. You know what I mean? But put him in a car and he's a different creature. He was, an, you know, animal, animal in the car and wouldn't give up. And, and, and I, I've the utmost respect for people that do that, you know, that just, just won't give up. You know, even when the brakes don't come, the next brake will come along. Maybe that'll work then. And it's that constant thing. Um, yeah, so I think Nigel would be on the list. Yeah, yeah, let's put Nigel on the list. Mika, Michael, Lewis, Kimmy, and Kimmy. And Kimmy. Yeah, but then you know, yeah, it's not a bad top five, I suppose. But then you've got gorgeous people like like Leclerc coming up, and who's you know, he could bust things wide open. Uh, and I love the new boys, Lando and George, and all these boys, and you know, Carlos Sainz. It's like a playground for them. It's really weird. <laughs> like they're sixteen years old. It make me feel so old <laughs> looking at these, looking at these kids who in the evening because my son watches them racing on Twitch or whatever it is, doing the virtual racing that they, you know, they've got the simulator setups in their house, and when they're not racing, they're racing in their house. It's insane. They do twenty-four hour races and all sorts of stuff. Dream. Uh, it does a whole new batch coming around and a new way of thinking. Uh, it'll be really, really interesting to see where this goes. Really interesting. Look, I have loved talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I'm, I'm sure You're very we'll welcome. Plenty more time on our hands over the next few weeks. So I hope we get. To I know, I know, I know. It's and really weird. I hope. I listen. I hope. I think we'll be lucky to get Silverstone. I, just from what, just from the news and whatever, would be. Yeah. I think. I don't. We'll be very lucky if we get. Um, 
Silverstone. I, th- I think even if it clears up before then, the organisation to, to put that together may, may not happen. Well, there's um, some talk about the fact that because there are so many teams based in and around Silverstone, that we may use Silverstone as a racetrack because obviously then they don't have to travel. Um, we yeah. Use Silverstone as a track for more than one race this year, but just later in the year, I don't know. You know, it's it's a very yeah, it's it, yeah. No, it takes it takes away the space. And listen, hold on. Sober have to travel. Ferrari have to travel. Toro yeah. Rosso or whatever they call Alpha Tauri, whatever they call this year. I know you can't even pronounce it. They they have to travel. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, they will. They could easily just stick their fingers up and go. Hold on, it's okay for you guys because there's a few because Cosworth is in Northampton. Yeah. Uh, you know, we need to get racing. Uh, yeah, we do need do need to get racing. But you know, f- listen, fingers crossed. My missus was asking me, "How long do you think?" And I said, "Look, if this." curve flattens in two weeks mm. then it's another two weeks to to make sure it's not going to get any worse and minimum another two weeks after that to let it to see where we are before this so i think you know if i think if you're if you're, if you're head any shorter than six weeks with this i think you might be slightly delusional mm. um enjoy the time off enjoy the time with your kids if you're lucky enough to have them if not go ahead and do the garden paint the house you know Use the time. I'm telling you, in a year's time, people have been going to go, why didn't I use the time when I was off? I'm back at work now. I hate it. People have been doing that. You've uh, wanted this. Many people in the real world have said, what would I do if I had like two or three months off? It was like people were waiting on their retirement just so they could have three months off. You have three months off. Don't whinge about it. Do what you said you were going to do, apart from the travel. But do your bits and pieces. Get to know your family again, even if it's on Zoom. <laughs> the motivational speeches of the day from Liam Cunningham. I correct, know. correct. This... I'll probably be totally depressed tomorrow night. No, no. <laughs> um, thank you so much for your company. It's lovely to see you. Nice the... talking to you, Natalie. Oh, it was a pleasure. Never a chore. Thank you, Liam Cunningham, for that chat absolutely fascinating stuff i always think it's really interesting hearing from someone who's outside of formula one looking in and particularly someone like liam who has loved the sport pretty much his whole life and been involved coming to the sport for like over 25 years watching drivers come and go and being affiliated with various teams so thank you for that uh, unique insight mr cunningham and also how about that inside scoop on Game of Thrones Um, I'm a massive fan of the series and uh, it was just great to hear what kind of went on behind the scenes of the the epic series on HBO Um, thank you also for your company not just for Liam's podcast but throughout this series I know it's a really strange time for everyone so it's so important for us to to stay connected to keep talking Um, so give me all your feedback let me know who else you want me to talk to Um, any questions that you've got for guests coming up Um, who include who else have we got coming on the way Uh, Will Greenwood's coming back again um, as is Daniel Ricciardo and we've got Johnny Bairstow we've got the editor of Hello Magazine Rosie Nixon um, Gethin Jones and Kate Thornton so a real mixture of characters on the way Um, on In The Pink and more chances to win those Bose noise cancelling headphones 
hashtag uh, in a friend. Um, let us know what you've been up to during lockdown and add the hashtag Bose and we will pick uh, a few more winners at random and post those out to you. Um, but for now, thanks again for your company and I will speak to you very soon. Bye-bye for now. Stay safe, stay home, stay connected. Kate here from Forever 35 to tell you about the Inky List, who has been and continues to be a part of an open and honest conversation about skin and skincare. You can tweet at them, DM them, or visit their website to ask them anything about ingredients, your skincare routine, or your skin. And whatever your skin needs, whether you have oily skin, dry skin, or combo, they have a product with the right ingredient for you. Through knowledge and affordability, they have products less than $15. The Inky List is making the right skincare accessible to everyone. Visit theinkylist.com, that's the I-N-K-E-Y list.com, and use the hashtag AskInky to join the community of the skincare curious today. 